them do one move at a time. The U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the September edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Jonathan Crumiller, a national master in both over-the-board and correspondence chess. He was featured on the cover of Chess Life in September 2013 with his world-class collection of antique chess sets, boards, and publications, which was on view at the time in the exhibition Prized and Played at the World Chess Hall of Fame. He has since had two other exhibits at the hall as well, Encore in 2015 and the Staunton Standard in 2018 in which he was a co-exhibitor. John collaborated with Grandmaster Lev Albert on the 2016 CJA, that's the Chess Journalist of America, Instructional Book of the Year, Carlson vs. Karyakin, World Chess Championship, New York 2016. You can hear a different interview I did with him and Lev in our podcast archives, where I talked to them on the February 2020 edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Earlier this summer, he received the Special Services Award from U.S. Chess in recognition of his support and service to the chess community and to U.S. Chess. John and his wife Jenny live in Princeton, New Jersey and have three children and two grandchildren. He is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Princeton Consultants, Inc., a mid-sized consulting firm that specializes in business optimization and operational efficiency. You can see his website at chessantiques.com. Welcome to One Move at a Time, John Crimmiller. Well, thanks, Stan. I, it's my it's a privilege to uh, to be on on with you, and glad to discuss chess collecting and, and everything chess related. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get started in chess overall? Uh, in chess overall, and as with many people, chess has been a lo- lifelong influence, uh, and with lifelong friends, and from different aspects. So, first, of course, the playing aspect. Then I got into other aspects of it, chess collecting, uh, chess research, especially um, uh, anti- you know, on the antique side, and authorship as well, as you, as you mentioned. On the playing side, I'm a f- pure Fisher Boom <laughs> uh, kid, uh, starting back in uh, then, had played a little bit uh, uh, before that. But then the Fisher, uh, the Fisher-Spassky match is when I really dove into the game, started playing more seriously. Um, played on my high school team, managed to win a, a state championship and uh, University of Delaware championship and a couple things. And of course, Delaware's not a big state, so uh, not a you know it's it's not like New York championship or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, learning about the history of the the players and the world champions and other top players, and it's that is absolutely fascinating 
uh, to learn about the people uh, behind the game, uh, the, the top pe- people throughout history. Um, then, and just as a very quick recap, uh, marriage. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 40th uh, in May. Um, three, three kids, so somewhat of a hiatus where I uh, gave some chess simuls in prisons and um, uh, malls and things like that, a couple blindfold simuls. Got into correspondence chess, played in the Golden Knights several times. Um, and then back in 97 is when I thought, okay, let me see if I can get back into it. And I started taking lessons with Lev Albert. And what a life-changing experience that was. First of all, he's a fantastic teacher. Um, but uh, second of all, it, it sort of propelled me into the next level of not only playing, but be, becoming much more involved with the game uh, and and Lev would have, uh, sometimes we'd be having a lesson and there'd be a knock at the door and he'd say, oh, we have a special guest. Oh, it's uh, Yusupov. It's um, Razaveyov. It's Sheveshnikov. It's Krogius. It's Dorfman. Uh, it, so, and uh, another time, it's Kramnik. <laughs> so just an amazing set of experiences. And I just loved it. Um, then in 2002, um, I saw my first antique chess set. And it was on eBay. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know there were antique chess sets, literally. And so I I bought it and loved it. It was a Jake's set. And Jake's, J-A-Q-U-E-S, is kind of the standard. um, And started buying other chess sets. And that's how I became a collector. And then I started researching everything. uh, And I've done plenty of research projects, which are a lot of fun. And then segued into the... um, uh, exhibitions and authorship part. So that's kind of the quick, you know, flyby summary of th- things leading to today. And in fact, today I am in St. Louis at the Chess Collectors International um, Convention. So, <laughs> in spite of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I, so uh, the the Lev Albert uh, situation. I'm I'm curious about before we talk more about collecting. How did you go from a student to becoming a collaborator with him? Uh, it. Yeah, it's a, um, of course, playing with Lev, one's, one learns a lot and one's strength goes up. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously he's, he's three time U.S. champion. He's a very strong player, strong grandmaster. And even in his 70s, uh, I guess it was about four or five years ago, he played in the U.S. amateurs and went six and oh on board one uh, for his team and has played other uh, tournaments since including one in San Francisco where I was his second. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was a really fascinating tournament. Uh, Arena Crush was in it, um, Mikhailson, Sveshnikov, and other long-time grandmasters and had tremendous fun with them. But So part of it is just hanging out uh, with, uh, and kind of like Forrest Gump-like, uh, hanging out with the greats uh, and learn becoming friends with with them i was certainly friends with lev and uh so we started collaborating uh on on things and uh the book being a a very important one that took a long time and a lot of effort um and then followed by a recent article or cover story article uh may i have the envelope please uh, on chess adjournments uh and just one interesting thing about adjournments younger players didn't even don't even know about them or didn't even know about them that they existed and yet they were such an important part of chess history 
and really a part of the game. So I was very glad to team up uh, with Lev and and uh, and write that as well. So for our listeners who didn't hear that podcast in February, uh, the article is uh, in the February 2020 edition of Chess Life. You can find that at uschess.org. Um, so w- what is the collaboration like when you're writing an article or writing a book with with Lev? Does he say like sketch out the the annotations and and then you you put it into prose or is it some other method? It's it's definitely a teamwork. Um, and w- what we do is we've sketched out a table of contents, but the conceptual contents of it. And of course, Lev has uh, you know, good and strong ideas about that. I'm an equal participant in that. Uh, when it comes to the prose, I write uh, most of the words, I, uh, but we go through many uh, iterations until we both think that it's as close to perfect as we want it. Um, it, it Lev is a perfectionist, and I say that to his credit. That, I, that's a that's a great uh, feature to have when you're writing a book. <laughs> because uh, it, it keeps everything uh, at the, at the maximum. Um, I'm also a perfectionist and so we worked well together in that respect. So each for the book for instance, each chapter we were, we would work on it. each chapter was um, a, a, the core chapters were of course one per per game, but we analyzed them for days or week literally weeks uh, and tried to come up with the best we could. but we wanted to capture the match from the human angle as well. So I got permission from uh, Aegon, the, the um, official sponsor of FIDE at the time, to uh, use all of their photos from the match. And uh, I was very pleased to get that permission. The reason I got permission was that I had uh, written most of a book for them on antique chess collecting called Masterworks. Uh, which was, uh, I'm not sure what year it was published. I think it was 2016. No, it must have been 2015 or somewhere somewhere in that uh, range. Yes, that's right. And it was about antique chess sets. And I teamed up with several other authors. The editor was Dylan Loeb McLean, who for many years wrote the uh, New York Times chess articles and had, had a great time working with Dylan on that. But as a result of that book, uh, they they granted me permission to use all the photos, and that was such a nice addition to the uh, Carlson Karyakin book because many of the photos were w- way behind the scenes, um, you know, per- personal moments, uh, and of course the, the photos of the competition as well. So it really worked out worked out very well from that from that angle. Um, so is that book also um, still in print and available? Yeah, uh, yes, it is. Uh, and uh, the, the Masterworks book is what led us into the Carlson Karyakin book because it was released uh, the same day as it was released day one of the Carlson Karyakin match. And so I had and just luckily uh, was able to um, get a ticket to the VIP area for the match as a result of the book and uh, was interviewed. Uh, but and Lev, of course, Lev was there too. So that's when the gears started turning uh, for us to write the Carlson Karyakin book. And he suggested that later. What was funny was uh, I was interviewed 
for the Masterworks book by different uh, news teams from around the globe, which is kind of ego boosting, but not, you know, <laughs> obviously I'm not a top player or anything like that. But the first uh, team to interview me was from Norway. And of course, Carlson's from Norway. And I, I am also Nor Norwegian. Um, my, my, and I mentioned that to them. I said, my mother uh, was born in Drammen. And the, guy, uh, the, the interviewer's jaw dropped. And he said, I live in Drammen. And I could tell that, was going to, that interview was going to go very well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and, and in fact, it did. So, so that was a lot of fun. So if we move back to collecting, um, I, I'm curious, since you started as a player uh, before you became a collector, what was your very first chess set? And it would delight me no end to hear that it was the typical red and black plastic pressman set. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my first chess set as a kid, um, I, I received from my dad, and it was a, a simple but wo uh, wooden it was uh, a simple wooden set. Um, it, in high school, my certainly my favorite set was the. Uh, let me see the uh, I had a player's choice set, which was a plastic set, and um, it's one other type of plastic set. But uh, definitely the plastic sets of standard size with the green and white plastic roll-up board, and I took that took those everywhere and. That's what everybody used, and they're they're great. Um, collecting wise, I mentioned my first antique, uh, my first antique set, a Jake's set. Um, Jake's is in London, and they've been making chess sets since, since uh, for a couple hundred years. Um, uh, Tom uh, John Jake's the second was the main kind of chess wholesaler, but his father actually started. Uh, making them earlier, and th that was in late 18th century uh, that Jake started doing that. So, long time. But then I started collecting and playing sets. Um, I was only interested in the playing sets, Staunton playing sets. Um, but then I branched out into other antique types of playing sets, many of them precursors. And only later did I get into the ornamental sets, which are not playing sets. They're not for playing. They're not for play. They're for display. So I, I imagine in this uh, COVID social distancing world where over-the-board play has essentially come to a halt, I imagine this is a good time for chess collectors. Uh, I, I bet, am I correct that there, that this may be a little bit of a boom time for your organization? Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, there's been, uh, of course, Chess Collectors International has, I think, close to 2,000 members worldwide if i uh, could based on the literature that i that i saw today i had have been in the past an officer of of cci um however due to business uh, you know i haven't been the the thing that has uh, affected antique chess collecting has been a really controversial topic and one that i i need to touch upon and that's the ivory ban um and i'm a huge proponent of the ivory ban i i think it's absolutely mandatory um, and elephant conservation is something that's been near and dear to my heart for several decades. Uh, however, the ban extends to antique ivory. And as a result, uh, from a collecting standpoint, it has, um, it has uh, contracted uh, chess collecting capabilities because one can no longer uh, acquire set, a 200-year-old ivory set. So I just wanted to mention that aspect of ivory because I do have st strong uh, feelings about 
you know, about um, the importance of, and I, I was even a, a supporter of the ivory bands from uh, from the get-go. Clarify for me a bit. So you, you can own a 200-year-old or older ivory set. You just can't uh, transfer it or sell it? Is, is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, uh, it depends. Um, there's a federal import and a federal export ban, and uh, there are state bans. And uh, there are a handful of states that have bans. Other states um, may institute bans but have not yet. I live in New Jersey. It has the strictest ban in the nation. Uh, so it's uh, New Jersey residents cannot, and now I'm quoting, buy, sell, or attempt to sell, unquote. Anything with ivory, including mammoth ivory, um, which shows you how very far the ban, the ban went. And, of course, chess sets, there are plenty of chess sets made of mammoth ivory, um, including important antique sets like 18th century Russian Kolmogori sets and things like that. Well, so I'm wondering, so so for these older sets, is the theory on, on the ban that uh, to, to just try to kill interest in it and to, to prevent any new ivory from entering the market, or is it something else? I think that is it. It's to prevent any possible loopholes. And in fact, the, the ban does have uh, some exceptions. For instance, uh, p- pianos. So musical instruments where a very small percentage is of, of the overall item is ivory and things like that. But chess sets are unique in that respect in that the ivory sets are entirely ivory. So they, they don't come under any sort of um, exception whatsoever. And I'm talking about even chess pieces. And I have chess, pe- chess and gaming pieces from 1000 A.D., 1200 at the middle ages up through the 1500s and those are completely completely banned of course it's impossible to save the elephants from back then but they're trying you know trying to close any sort of uh loophole and so it is what it is and so we just move forward with that of course there are wonderful wooden sets porcelain uh antique sets um and and of of other substances as well now, as I was researching for this show, uh, an, another controversial topic I saw uh, that I'd love to hear you your your thoughts about are restoring antique sets, whether it's a good thing or leave them as as is. Please please speak on that. Sure, um, and I I think I read an article I read an article on this not uh, probably about five years ago because there are two schools of thought. I think both sco- each school of thought has complete validity. (laughs) And one school of thought is that damage to a chess set becomes part of the history of that set. And so therefore, it shouldn't be restored because, um, you know, it is is part of the identity of the set. The other camp uh, is that uh, careful professional restoration of a set restores the set to its uh, the honor and glory that it is supposed to have. And so, so you can tell that each camp um, or each, each of those two viewpoints just has a lot of validity and is perfectly sound. I happen to be in the second uh, camp. And so, yes, I have uh, on occasion when necessary, uh, when there has been damage, had professional restoration to sets. I will also note that I have I keep a database, of course, of my chess sets, and I carefully note 
any restoration that has taken place because a collector is a caretaker of the chess sets. And owner is not the right word. We're really caretakers until the next generation comes along. And so any restoration, anything that's happened to that set should be passed along as well uh, as part of the provenance and history of, of a set. Are there people who specialize in set restoration or is it more if you have a porcelain set that you deal with someone who has experience uh, with porcelain? It is the former. There are several people who are um, highly skilled at chess set restoration. Now, they also do other things, although I, I, have, I know of several people who really specialized in antique chess restoration, um, but also other top restorers restore other things. They're extremely adept at chess sets, and I wouldn't want to uh, use a restorer who, who had, didn't have that experience. Um, and this may be a naive question, but do collectors differentiate between the terms uh, chess pieces, board, and sets? Yes, uh, because uh, let's say it's an auction. Well, if there's a set, uh, then that means it's it's uh, 32 pieces, right? Uh, unless it's noted that a piece is missing or something, which can certainly happen, especially in antique sets. Um, pieces tend to be not complete sets at all, but you know, two pieces, one even one piece, six pieces. Uh, there's an auction tomorrow. Uh, in fact, here in St. Louis, Chess Collectors International auction. Uh, quite a few sets. I think it has 267 auction lots, odd being what one, one offering. Um, but probably a handful, maybe 10 of those, are just pieces. So here's a set of three pieces, here's a set of five pieces, that type of thing. And of course, boards are the boards. They're different. Um, table, the tables, which are boards on uh, as part of tables, are different as well. And I also have always collected and found very interesting antiquarian chess books and publications. Uh, so I have a handwritten letter by Philidor um, and, and uh, uh, some of the classic, classic chess uh, books and writings uh, over the centuries. Fa- just absolutely fascinating um, topic. If people are interested in getting involved in collecting, to, to give them an idea of what they may be in for, can you tell me what the range of estimated value is of the items on this auction taking place tomorrow? Sure. Um, uh, and not everything in the auction by any stretch is antique. There are quite a few 20th century, even a few 21st century uh, items for auction. Most of the items, I believe, are or about half or more than that are 19th century. Some, a few of them are earlier than 19th century. And of course, those are the ones I focus on 19th century. Um, for for a, a 19th century, relatively simple set, um, can you, is it possible to get one for $100? Absolutely. Um, is it possible to get one for $50? Probably not. Is it possible to get one for you know, $10,000. Yeah, sure. If you want, <laughs> it depends on the, the quality of the, the set because the top quality sets are really world-class works of art. And so 
the, then it gets more into the realm of what what a world class work of art um, caused. But but absolutely to answer your question, yeah uh, yes, uh, um, pl- playing sets. Uh, you can get a 19th century playing set that is you know nicely used, used by hundreds of players over the decades and centuries. Some are worn down. They're just wonderful. Um, and uh, yes, you can get those for, for a reasonable price. Is there any magic formula for getting involved in collecting or is it a just do it type of situation? Uh, it's a... It's it's a discovery uh, when you dis- when if someone discovers an antique chess set or a chess set that they like and they acquire it, and then they see another one and they like that and they acquire it. It really takes only a couple sets to start becoming a a collector. Uh, it it's it's funny because I for many for years I did not consider myself to be a collector until my wife said, "You're a collector because." Look, we don't have any more space in, the, you know, these four rooms. I was like, oh, she's right. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I guess I better cave to the notion that I'm a collector. And um, another great way to get it uh, to to do that is to join Chess Collectors International. And just putting in a, a minor plug for it, it's a it's a um, uh, there's a small annual fee, but more, most importantly, you have access to real experts and i i'm i'm in that category um and i answer questions all the time email the world chess hall of fame uh sent uh forwards emails to me and i i answer for people and it's uh, of course i'm just one person there are quite a few uh experts in all different facets of chess uh, of chess sets so if somebody said i have a porcelain set i would say hey i can tell you about them but I'm going to point you to the person who's an, uh, the world's top expert in porcelain sets. And to be able to draw on those resources is, is wonderfully uh, educational, but also builds one's enthusiasm very quickly. So what is your most prized item? Uh, that's all, that's, it's really hard to pick. I'd say it's, there are probably a dozen uh, sets that I have. And they're the antique, uh, 18th century, possibly 19th century, the the, the true works of art uh, type sets, and then one or two playing sets. So uh, it's it's kind of like children uh, can't pick a favorite, um, but several of them I it's hard to imagine being without. I fully expected you to use the uh, children analogy. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and like any of us with multiple kids, we all say that, but. Deep down, we have a favorite kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will point out one or two that are our supreme favorites. Um, I have a an 18th century. It's so it's 1780ish, uh, and it was made in Florence, Italy, by the Catholic Church, and it is uh, it's an ivory set, and it is on the theme of good versus evil or virtue versus vice. And so the one side are all pious. Um, uh, the bishops are holding Bibles. Uh, uh, you know, the, they're they, they're all upright. They're they just look as pious as one could imagine. The the red side and red because the stain, the, the most common stain for the the black pieces was red in the 19th and 18th uh, centuries. 
um, are, are just absolutely debauchery. Uh, so the king is Mephistopheles, the queen is exposing herself, the, they're um, satyrs and just, uh, uh, oh, they're reading Dante's Inferno. It, it's just a, a marvelous, marvelous um, set uh, that I, that I was able to acquire, um, one or two other sets, if, if it's okay. Um, yeah. The East, East India company sets, um, East India company was a company actually that people don't know this, but there were different East India companies. There was one for the, for the British, but, uh, for instance, the Dutch had their own East India company. Um, and so we're talking 1600, 1700s, 1800s in India. And this was, uh, obviously not the best situation when one, country is overseeing and in charge of people in in the other country but that's the way it was back then and uh they made uh, the indian craftsmen made just incredible sets and the pretty much one of the top of the line sets is called east india company sets or uh, john company sets uh which is what the east india company that's its common name and those sets are figural sets uh they are just the, the kings and queens are riding on elephants. The, the sets are just marvelously carved. And so I have um, several East India Company sets, and they, they have to be right at the top also. And I believe all of these uh, are, are pictured on your website at chessantique.com? Yes, that's correct. So I, I encourage people to go take a look at there. There's lots of gorgeous photos of gorgeous sets. And, and just one point about the website. Um I'm not a dealer. I don't sell. I don't actually sell. It's really just for the benefit of collectors. So, just just you know, as a as background for the. Since your collecting goes beyond uh, sets, uh, and, and what's your most prized uh, non-chess set item? Um, it's again, it's hard to judge, but there there are a few books. So, for instance, we've all played the Roy Lopez. Um, or played against it, especially for double king pawn players or king pawn players. Um, in 1561, Roy Lopez wrote his his famous manual, and I'm pleased to have an original um, of the 1561 Roy Lopez book. It's not my earliest book, and another book that stands out would be uh, Damiano. And Damiano wrote different versions, early 1500s. And I have uh, the the fourth edition, which is 1528. Uh, uh, and it was, of course, when, when Damiano wrote his book, um, a lot of people didn't know the world was round. It was it was it was that kind of an age, uh, early 1500s. So it's a long time ago. In fact, it was only the late 1400s in the 1490s. So only. Two, a couple de- two decades before that, that the queen and bishop, especially the queen, we've heard of, got their new powers. The queen was the weakest piece on the board, etc. Then in 1490s, the queen became the strongest piece on the board. Interestingly, we discussed that today at Chess Collectors International. Um, but so the Damiano book. Uh, would definitely be one of them. That's not even my oldest book. I have Galensis from the 1490s, but that is not a chess instruction manual. It has chess. The early books oftentimes have chess as allegories to life or chess as as part of poems and things like that. The Galensis book is along those lines. 
So I'm, I'm take this in a little bit of a different direction now. Uh, one of the interesting things about working at U.S. Chess is it's not uncommon for us to receive letters from people who have a better mousetrap when it comes to chess sets, who have redesigned what a chess set is and claiming it's the it, it's bigger and better. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, considering that Staunton design is still the standard, has there ever been a non or an unconventional design that you've seen where you thought, you know what, given time, uh, I could see this uh, replacing Staunton? Uh, for me personally, the answer is I have not seen any other set. The Staunton piece is one of the first or the first um, celebrity endorsers of a product, at least in modern times. And by modern, I mean, you know, the last thousand, thousand years, um, lent his name to it. Uh, he did not design it, even though he insinuates that he had, uh, he designed it. But as Staunton kept saying, this set is, has so, has, is perfect. It's really, and that is actually why it became the standard because the Staunton set is so perfect as a playing set. Um, and here's one way you can tell that it's perfect is by the imperfections of other sets. For instance, a, pre a predecessor to the Staunton design called the Edinburgh or the Northern Upright, the Edinburgh Upright or the Northern Upright design, which when people look at it, they would say, hey, I recognize a lot of the attributes of Staunton sets. But the pieces were taller, and they would tend to tip over under some situations, or you couldn't see a piece because it was a little too tall, so a pawn could be hidden behind a, a, another piece. The Staunton pieces don't have any of those flaws. They're wonderfully balanced. They're in pers uh, you know, they're the height perspective and the, the, um, the width. Uh, so the, I, I think of Staunton as the perfect set, and it's proven itself over time to do that. Uh, the, what the most common thing that's happened is slight variations on the Staunton design. So, for instance, um, FIDE and their official chess sets for the world championship matches. Oh, they're definitely Staunton sets, but they have slight changes to them uh, so that they're not a classic Staunton design. They're very close to they are Staunton sets, but they're um they have their own name for it. And I'm not saying those are any better or, or, and I'm not saying they're worse either because they're just about equivalent. But yeah, the Staunton design is in my, to my mind, um, at, about as good as you can get. How often does board design factor into how good piece design is? Um, well, board design, uh, changed a lot or there were many varieties, I should say, in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, but then it became more or less just a st standard fare in the 1900s. And I, but I think the reason is, in the earlier centuries, there were many more types of ornamental sets for display purposes. That and so the boards had to match. You don't want to put a fancy ornamental set on a plain board uh, that highlights the set even better. So, but there were many types of, uh, in fact, I read an article on um, uh, chess tables because there were different types, you know, wonderful tables and some folded down to save space in uh, Victorian homes and things like that. But uh, 
the, the one of the important things about boards is the size of the squares, which must, of course, match the size of the pieces. So there, that, there's that type of pairing. But it's all come together. And so the size of the squares today is very standard. Size of the pieces is very standard. And when one is playing over the board, that standard size is, in, to my mind, close to perfect for, for playing an over-the-board game. Is there any kind of mathematical golden ratio of uh, how much uh, square size there should be to base diameter? Yes, there is. Uh, and one can go, I, I, I can't, I don't want to give an incorrect formula. Um, so from memory, I, so, but it's easily Googleable. So what the correct ratio is, uh, and in various websites have that ratio and they kind of parrot each other because the correct ratio, uh, it's kind of like the gold, you know, the golden mean or something like that. It's, it's, it's well understood uh, at this point. I'm, I'm curious if you also think that given the rise of online play, do you think that piece design on the two dimensional computer screen, mobile device screen will ever influence the three dimensional real world pieces? There was, there has been a lot lot of speculation and even articles written that that happened even in the 19th century where printed diagrams and you know you've seen uh, chess books for instance from uh, the early 1800s late 1700s and they all had printed diagrams there is speculation and not just speculation I mean well thought out that those diagrams actually influenced the design of chess pieces uh, as well, possibly even the Staunton pieces some some people hold. And so the, the chess pieces uh, online today, it's interesting because I wrote articles about the prevalence of chess sets, and people th- think of the Staunton design as being the most prevalent in the world. It, it was not. Uh, the, the Islamic design uh, was the, uh, most until online. And the most common chess set in the world is the online chess set. <laughs> it's the one you see on on all, all of the um, the chess playing sites because millions and millions of games are played, you know, every day on on that design. But I think that um, so it has happened before. I be, I believe that yes, chess, real three D chess pieces have been influenced by um, print by stamped uh, characters, and it, it could very well happen happen in the future. And just by saying the word 3D, that prompted another question uh, idea for me, which is, has there been a 3D printed chess set that has uh, been of note in the collector's world? Uh, yes. In fact, I saw several of them yesterday at the wor- at the current exhibitions at the World Chess Hall of Fame. Uh, so, And they'll be glad I, I mentioned this because they, right now they have three wonderful um, exhibitions, but on the... And, well, one of them actually, I contributed sets to a, a great exhibition called "Dare to Know," that um, T- Tom Gallegos and Luann Wanis uh, set up. And Tom is the current president of C- CCI USA, and Luann is treasurer. And they did a fantastic job with the CCI um, convention, in spite of the pandemic. You know, kind of the worst possible situation. But uh, on, and that's on the second floor. Uh, covers chess during the age of the enlightenment fantastic but on the third floor is uh power in check and it's about political chess sets and uh 
many of those chess sets were donated by Floyd Saracen, and it was Floyd's 92nd birthday yesterday, and Floyd is here uh, with his son, David, and Floyd's a longtime friend and longtime collector as well, um, with his uh, wife, Bernice, who unfortunately passed away uh, last year. But uh, several, of the, several of the sets in Power and Check are 3D. They're 3D printer, and um, Shannon Bailey, the chief curator, and uh, Emily Allred, the curator of that um, of that uh, exhibition, pointed out the 3D printed sets and said that a lot of people point them out. They they're very interesting. They like them a lot, and they expect more. So I encourage our listeners to visit the website of our friends at the World Chess Hall of Fame. Uh, it's worldchesshof.org. Again, worldchesshof. Org. And all of these exhibitions that John and I have mentioned are all archived on their set uh, the site. There's a lot of interesting text, um, a lot of really interesting pictures. So please take a look there. And if you ever have a chance to be in St. Louis, definitely visit the museum and, as well as the St. Louis Chess Club. And one, uh, yeah, one other quick thing, and I'm glad you mentioned it. The, the St. Louis Chess Club is right across the street from the World Chess Hall of Fame. And of course, both are our beneficiaries, and it's well worth mentioning Rex Sinkfield and uh, Rex and Jean uh, Sinkfield, the, the benefactors. And really, they've made St. Louis just such a prevalent uh, chess city in the, in the world. And I guess there's also a chess piece there that's uh, kind of uh, on, on every collector's um, must-have list, which is the world's largest chess piece. <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. In fact, the uh, World Chess Hall of Fame has had the world's largest chess piece, and then uh, several years ago, uh, it was exceeded by somewhere else, and so, uh, of course, we can't have that happen. So uh, Frank Camerata, also a friend and many-year collector and and, an expert, uh, uh, helped design the king, and it was unveiled at the 20... When was that? 2016... um, it was, was oh no it was it had to be I think it was 2017 uh, event uh, and unveiled and yes it is the world's largest chess piece it'll pro- probably stay that way during incidentally during that trip I had the wonderful experience of hanging out with you know people like Fabiano Caruana and uh, who are just the the American top grandmasters are amazingly friendly. Uh, which, uh, you know, if you have a chance and go up to them, they, they're happy to chat and just not very nice people. Well, you, you just triggered another uh, question for me. I, I remember reading many, many years ago that uh, many grandmasters did not own their own chess set. Have you heard that yourself? Um, I, I, I've only heard it from, from the historical angle. I think that chess players, of course, many of them now use computers, and that's kind of their main thing. Um, but most players that I've seen still like to move pieces across on the board, and uh, so the, the ones I've seen do have uh, do have a chess set or two, but they're not fancy. They're just the standard, you know, either plastic or wooden set that gets that gets played with. But more and more players are studying you know, with the, the tools, the online tools and with the, with chess base and other, other um, programs like that. If you're not giving away any kind of confidences, what, what kind of chess set does Love Albert use at home? He has uh, a 
uh, wooden chess set. It's uh, about the size of the, um, or slightly larger than standard tournament size. And it was given to him as a, as a kind of honorary gift by the United States Chess Federation. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, it has a little plaque on the board and, uh, you know, very, very nice set. But that's, that's the set he uses almost exclusively. So this has been pretty wide-ranging conversation. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm curious, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like uh, listeners to know about? Uh, just that the of chess has so many facets to it, so many aspects, and and just I've had the privilege of being able to enjoy chess, some of those different aspects. And so I guess my word of encouragement would be playing is, of course, one of the top aspects, certainly. But there are other aspects that are just fascinating and interesting and not only lead to world uh, lifelong interest, but lead to lifelong friendships as well. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us here on the September edition of One Move at a Time. I, it was a lot of fun talking to you. And, and likewise, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Dan, and, and good to talk with you as well. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.